0: The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Good evening, everybody.
1: Welcome to The Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition, the final stretch for The Weekend Variety Wireless. I think, what, another three weeks to go? Coming up this evening... You can find out what's on by going to the Weekend Variety Wireless web page. There are some supplementary videos there going into even more detailed explanation of some of the things that we're looking at for our astronomy piece today. And there's an amazing thing I entreat you. Go have a look. They found a crater. Hiding, a huge one, hiding underneath the ice in Greenland. And it could be quite young and explain a few weird things that have been going on. uh, Climate-wise, over the last few thousands of years, it could be up to a few million, but they'll find out in the end. Go have a look at it, it's in Greenland. Don't go to Greenland to look at it. I mean, it's on the page, of course. Later on this evening, the story of Gate Pa, the battle and we get two perspectives one from a descendant of some of the Maori combatants on the Maori side there were Maori combatants on the colonial side and also a military historian and we'll have a copy of the book to give away it's a cracking tale gruesome of course and full of tragedy but uh, one of those battles that actually makes it into the international history books on how to fight a battle I think Yeah, the YouTuber Lindy Beige has actually uh, done a lovely thing on that as well. Um, after 11 o'clock, Grant Smithies and myself, it's from years and years ago before we had The Great Falling Out, so we're far too nice to each other. Uh, we're having a look at great lyrics. Thought this would mesh nicely with our poetry thing um, that we're doing. Read me a poem tomorrow night is Tim Finn. We do talk a little bit about lyrics. Uh, so that'll be after 11 o'clock, Great Lyrics Part 1, and we'll wheel out the other one next week. Hope that suffices. No apologies from here. Next up, Science Report with Emily Park. Why wombat poo is cuboid, how it gets that way, and what are dogs really thinking?
0: you tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless.
1: Science Report this week. Emily Park from Auckland University, Philosophy of Science. Hello. Hello. Uh, You spotted this and said, oh, 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 can I talk about it? Wombat poo is square.
2: Yeah, one of the deep questions that has been troubling man since the dawn of time. Yeah. This is so cool because I have always wondered about wombat poo and why it's square and Mm. I didn't realise that science was figuring this out and now they have. So wombat's poo in cubes, as I'm sure you and most people know, the
1: cubic wombat poo—it's it's a peculiar thing, isn't
2: it? Yeah, and apparently they can poo up to a hundred cubes of these night—a uh, uh, hundred cubes a night. I learned okay. while researching this. So lots of square-shaped poo. What sort of
1: size are we talking about? Give us a nice, vivid description.
2: Apparently, the American cereal breakfast cereal shredded wheat is exactly the same size as wombat poo, but you don't—we don't eat that here. A centimetre-ish, I think, maybe okay. two. I haven't done. A study on that but so there are two why questions right you could say why did it evolve to be cubic shaped mm-hmm. and why do they get to be shaped that way as they you know Me- mechanically mechanically yeah so apparently um i wanted to have more time to research this uh how they've you know studied this and haven't but apparently the answer to the first question why question is pretty well sorted out mm-hmm. so they mark their territory with tall piles of poo and as anyone who's ever played with blocks knows, it's easier to build tall towers out of cubes than spheres. Oh! So that's that's the answer to why they might have evolved to have cubic poo. Right. Um, it doesn't roll away. Yeah, but on the way over here, I was thinking about, you know, there's all these other ways to make tall towers. I won't go into the details because they're kind of gross if you huh. think about different ways to poo. Yeah. Anyway, they build tall towers out of their cubic poo. People have known that for a while. The recent study that just came out, that was all over the internet is why are they shaped that way mechanically? How does it happen? So some mechanical engineers at the Georgia Institute of Technology um, who study fluid in animals. I didn't realize that was a field, but quite cool. They looked at a bunch of wombat digestive tracts. They were dead wombats, but apparently they were euthanized after they'd been hit by cars, mm. um, weren't killed for the study. So they emptied out the wombat intestines and filled them with balloons, like the long balloons sort of thing that you'd use to make a balloon animal.
1: Oh, not a drug mule balloon.
2: No, well, maybe they're the same. I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they studied how the tissue stretches in the intestine and apparently they found out that in the last 8-10% to 10% of the wombat's intestinal tract, the tissue of the intestine is, comes in really stretchy bits and then really stiff bits and then stretchy bits and then stiff bits. Ah. So there's these sort of edges. And the way they described it, it sort of sounds like making a balloon animal inside an animal. Kind of a gross image, but there's these little like edges and twists and um, sort of portioning off cube-shaped bits. Right. I wonder if it feels any good. I wonder. Um, an- another great nugget in this discussion <laughs> article. Yeah, yeah, you see what I did there? Um, was that they, <laughs> apparently previous studies have ruled out them having uh, square-shaped anuses. I didn't find those studies, but...
1: That would have been the first thing to look at, though. Yeah, definitely. When one, you see a wombat, you wouldn't have to follow it around for long to see the event happen. Is the anus square? No yeah uh it just comes out square so mm.
2: scientists have ruled that out but yeah apparently um they're going to do more research to figure out because all they've shown so far is sort of how it could get pinched off to make edges and angles and so forth but they're wondering now if there's because you really need four sides to make a cube right, right. so they're going to do further. yeah how do they
1: do that last so- oh it's already shaped by the time it comes out the anus right right yeah so it just snaps shut when done
2: I guess. And yeah. that's how all poo is formed. So there's nothing special about cubes there. But anyway, if you think about the geometry of it, it's actually quite complex. So apparently yeah, they're doing further studies to figure out exactly how mm. the poo cubes happen.
1: These poo uh, pyramids that they make, these poo towers, is like some sort of, look at me. Look at what I've done.
2: I guess so, yeah. yeah. I, I meant to read up on it more. It's to, I, I guess they mark their territory that way. Right. Yeah.
1: Are you done on wombat poo? Uh, or is there more? So, I don't want to leave any poo on the floor, put it that way.
2: Okay, no poo on the floor. I mean, and this this is kind of another theme is like how do you manufacture stuff that we're interested in based on stuff that animals do that's cool. Mm-hmm. So wombats poo squares and that's cool. And they point out at the end of this article that um, engineers only have two methods today to make things into cubes. You either mold them as cubes or you like make a big log and cut it up so the authors suggest that perhaps the wombat's amazing intestinal tract suggests a third engineering route to making cube-shaped stuff that we might want which is like have these stretchy bits and stiff bits and pinch them off
1: nature hates waste and probably finds efficient ways of doing things yeah. maybe this is the who knows
2: so maybe the next wave in like children's building blocks will be made based on wombat butt oh, technology
1: yeah lego just yeah. out it comes all these industrial sort of wombat methods yeah yeah Dance <laughs> australia fair good for them yeah all right now dogs what are they thinking i often wonder you look at them and you think they're thinking about the thing that you're thinking they're thinking about but are they thinking about the thing that you're thinking they're thinking about
2: that is exactly the question of metacognition and does the dog know what it's thinking about and know what it's not thinking about and know what it knows and know what it doesn't know. So, right, metacognition is cognition about cognition, thinking about what you're thinking and so forth. So there's tons of really interesting studies on dog cognition. And a new study says that dogs also have metacognition by the Dog Studies Lab at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History. Mm -hmm. Um, So they did these studies where basically they have two fences with gaps in them and They hide stuff that the dog might want behind the fences, like food or a toy. In some cases, they let the dog watch them hide it and then see if the dog goes to the right fence to get it, and then in other cases, the dog can't watch them hide it. They showed that when the dog wasn't watching them hide it, the dog would seek out further information before guessing which fence it was behind. So they would go up to the fence and look through a gap, Uh and if it wasn't there, go to the other fence. The authors claim that when the dog doesn't know where it's hidden, but they know it might be there they think about what they don't know and they seek out information to figure it out.
1: Okay, so they know what they don't know, they're thinking about what they don't know rather than just raw input.
2: Yeah, and I mean that's exactly the tough question here is how do you know this isn't just some kind of brute instinct. Uh-huh. Um, and so they, they made quite a big point in this study of basing this on other similar studies that have been done with primates. I forget which primate, bonobos or chimps. They did a similar study and, you know, the chimps sought out information. But it seems like an interesting thing to think about more here would be the senses that they're using, right? Because dogs use their noses quite a lot. Yeah. So why should we assume that just because they look through the gap, that's giving them all the information about where the thing is? Maybe they just smelled it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. They can smell things, as we know, a mile away yeah or thereabouts.
2: Yeah, one of the sort of bigger conclusions here, I think, is that figuring out what's going on in dogs' heads is hard.
1: Yeah, it is. Especially when you show them, you know, like a card trick. Yeah. And they they, they cock their head at one side. Why do they do that? I wonder why a dog cocks its head at one side and goes, "Mm -hmm," and goes, I wonder. I wonder if it's wondering, I wonder.
2: Yeah, Mm. or if it knows that we'll respond to it a certain way.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, I mean it's clear that they have all these amazing cognitive abilities, but I Mm. guess the tough thing is designing tests that actually give you clear evidence that they're doing the thing we think they're doing.
1: Yeah. Now, is dog cognition really that special?
2: This paper just came out, I actually just came right from discussing it with um, Alex Taylor's Dog Cognition Lab at the University. Look Mm -hmm. at this work, it's great. Really interesting discussion of this paper that just came out earlier this year in the journal Learning and Behaviour called In What Sense Are Dogs Special? And they're basically arguing that they're not that special. So lots of people think dogs are really special. Um, Especially
1: dog people.
2: Yeah, especially dog people. And, you know, everyone has their anecdote about the dog cocking its head or opening the door or doing something amazing. It knows when I'm coming home. Yeah. So clearly dogs are smart and they can do all these amazing things. We don't know if they have metacognition for sure, but you know, they can do all these amazing demonstrations of cognitive awesomeness. It's a, it's a review paper where they look at a bunch of research on dog cognition and they compare research on dogs to other species in terms of three different categories. So they, they ask, are dogs special among carnivores? the the broader phylogenetic group they belong to are mm-hmm. dog special among social hunters and our dog special amongst domestic animals and in all three cases they argue not so much they say they can do some impressive stuff but there's nothing unique about them oh. in any of these groups
1: <clears throat> nothing unique in as much as they aren't up to much or the other animals are up to just as much
2: more of the latter okay. but it was all in terms of looking at a bunch of these sorts of tasks can they open doors can they do the sort of thing i just described in the fence test right. can they know what's going on in someone else's mind the main point was in any of those three groups other carnivores social hunters and domestic animals there's tons of other species that can do the same stuff
1: right um we just don't live next door to them in yeah. proximity with them so much
2: yeah and i mean that's one point right is like They're special in one sense, which is that we think they're really special. Um, Mm. But a sort of, you know, as a philosopher, a bigger issue for me in thinking about this work was uh, what does special mean in the first place? Yeah. That's such a strange word to use in a sort of rigorous scientific setting.
3: Amazeballs.
2: Yeah. That's what
1: you could put in a paper.
2: That would have been a great title, In What Sense Are Dogs balls? Yeah. But seriously, I mean, if they do all these really cool things and maybe they're not unique, but that doesn't mean they're not, you know really good model organisms for thinking about other things or really good bases for certain comparative tests.
1: Yeah, and and anecdote, I'm taking it as true because it was um, told to me by my grandmother who had an African grey parrot Mm -hmm. and also was on a farm with a seeing eye dog. This is a competition between bird versus dog. Bird won because the bird could whistle the commands to the dog and the bird would get the dog to herd the sheep.
2: Nice. African grey parrots are special.
1: They are special. So special. Yeah. Just like Chrissy Hines said. <laughs> um Have you heard um Alex the Parrot? Yeah. It's freakish, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. He died a few years ago, didn't he? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, looking a bit rough. Had a hard life in the lab, I think. But yeah. when the it gets the bird to um pick out how many blue ones? Four. And things yeah. like that. But the freakiest thing is when Alex the Grey Parrot says,
2: I'm tired, can I go back now?
1: Yeah. In a, in a Kermit-like voice, as a, you know, parrot-like voice actually. Yeah,
2: I know, it's it, amazing.
1: Yeah, it is a weird thing. I keep Alex the Parrot nearby so I can play it at um, a moment's notice. And I've had a moment's notice. Here's Alex the Parrot.
0: Here's Quirk. Look at this mess. Now this is a confounded number task. And what's important about it is there are all these different objects really mixed in, all amongst one another. And I'm going to ask him about a subset of these items, and that will show again that he's understanding my question and understanding all the numbers.
2: Okay, here, we'll
0: spread them out a little bit. Here, do you want to look? I'm going to move things around a little. Can you look and tell me how many green wool? Good parent. Good boy. A boy, do you want a you want a nut? Yeah, you have to ask for them. And you can ask for corks. You asked for a cork before. Do you want a cork instead? Huh? Do you want a cork? Do you want a little piece oh, of- All right. That's a fair
2: enough request for now.
1: Well, I hope you deciphered that. Um, a, a parrot asking to go back into its cage. Is that thinking about thinking? What does it say about the bird?
2: It's really good at talking at least yeah i'm being skeptical i don't know no I think, good so you should I think be. this is a tough alex is amazing and then what can you extrapolate about parrots from that is a really tough question yeah
1: a bit smart anyway yeah and i wonder how smart we are when it comes comes to it how so, do i know you're smart and
2: not just a robot
1: or now we're getting to the philosophy of science <laughs> how do i know i'm not just a, jib, a brain in a vat exactly that sort of thing how do we have free will do you think i don't know Anyway, uh, moving on from the dogs.
2: So final story in the theme of like animals doing awesome stuff and also people doing strange things with dead animals in the lab. Bioengineering based on the microstructure of cat tongues. So recent paper where engineers were studying the grooming of six different feline species, another kind of comparative study. So from domestic cats to bobcats to lions, and I think tigers they were interested in what's going on with those little spines on cat's tongues and why are they so good at cleaning yeah they built something that they called a quote automated grooming machine out of the tongues and fur from dead cats
1: from dead cats mm-hmm. that would be a bit different than live cats though
2: yeah it was not a live cat grooming itself okay so apparently they attached the tongues of dead cats to mechanical arms and got them to like lick cat fur so I'm a little creeped out by this but that's what they did it's quite a cool way to study the mechanics because they could zoom in with cameras and see why can't you do that with a live cat well because you wouldn't be able to get in there and watch what's happening in quite the same sort of way I guess and you couldn't manipulate it as much the cat might get angry and I guess this is easier. They didn't kill the cats again. Anyway, cat tongues are covered in tiny spines and before they thought they were shaped like little cones, like sort of hairbrush, the spines on hairbrushes. Mm -hmm. It turns out they're actually like little scoops with a groove at the tip. That's what this study found out. No. Yeah they have like millions of little tiny or thousands or whatever of tiny scoops on their tongue and there's a surface tension so the scoop catches a bunch of bits of saliva and then releases it in their fur when they're licking they found out the tongue acts like a loofah and a sponge at the same time it's like cleaning their fur but also sucking stuff up pretty amazing it's
1: amazing this hasn't really been found out before
2: I know well bioengineering is yeah, Yeah. so cool And again, they they end with a suggestion for, like, what can we make with this that lets us do something cool. So they've demonstrated something that they call the Tiger Brush, T-I-G-R, which stands for Tongue Inspired Grooming. So they, like, 3D printed a bunch of little scoopy spines onto a silicone base and used it to brush cat fur. Brilliant. Yeah.
1: Nice. Pretty cool. Ah, I found on YouTube something that was kind of special, mainly because... Carl Sagan was really special. You know who Carl Sagan was, though. Of course,
2: yeah. I'm just laughing because special is the theme of today's show. It
1: is special. And it's a lost speechy he gave. It hasn't been available. It was made in 1994, just a couple of years, I think, before he died. And it really is a lovely thing. And he talks about cognition in primates. And it's, well, he's just... Groovy and inspired a lot of scientists over the years. Oh,
2: cool. I'll check it
1: out. Alright. So here's a little sample. It's only just been made available.
0: Just look up Carl Sagan94 on YouTube. Not just the so-called higher apes, but running through the apes and the monkeys, to me is very persuasive that they have thoughts. Not only deep philosophical thoughts, but useful practical thoughts like lying, like deceit, like planning to fool others, thinking about it far in advance. But let me just give one, uh, one little image, which I like because it covers many different grounds. These are the results of um, work at the Arnhem colony in the Netherlands. Uh, where there's a large uh, free-roaming community of chimps. Males are uh, testosterone-riven and subject to raging hormonal imbalances. They get angry at each other and uh, pick up rocks. They go quite a distance to get the rocks in order to confront the guy who they don't like, and throw stones. The very act of going over there out of sight of the enemy to pick up the stones and then bring them back to throw the stones shows thinking ahead, understanding a goal, and aware of yourself and the opposition. But the most interesting thing is it is common for female chimps seeing the males burdened with their stones, to walk up to them and disarm them, pluck the stones out of their arms, open up their fingers, and throw the stones away. And when the males in a huff gather them up, the females disarm them again. So not only do the males know what they have in mind, the females know what they have in mind. That, to me, not only is consciousness, but a uh, social arrangement I'd like to see more of in humans. (laughs) (laughs) You're tuned in. You're tuned in. Tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live.
1: Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Grant Christie, hello. Graham, how are you? Okay. A big week for astronomy this week and also coming up. Uh, there's the Mars landing, um, this uh, experimental thing. NASA's having another go at it. Uh, we have some supplementary, complementary video links. Um, up on the weekend variety wireless that you can have a look at. Let's, should we talk about the Mars thing first? Sure. Um, it's pretty well explained in the video about what's going on, uh, how it, what is it, the seven minutes of terror that all these things uh, experience when hitting the atmosphere to hopefully
3: a successful landing? That's right. Well, you know, it's uh, so far it's worth saying that NASA's the only space agency so far that's been able to land anything on the surface of Mars, it works. Wow. I mean, the Russians' ones didn't work, Britain's one hit, didn't even slow down. The Russians' was splat- one was going down nice and slowly,
1: but apparently they didn't realise it was going sideways at about 200 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. So, I mean, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong.
1: Yeah.
3: And uh, so, all credit to NASA, and uh, so this next one that's uh, tipped to land should be on the ground safely. Yeah. On uh, uh, by 9am Tuesday our time. Yeah. So it's a nice early morning thing so you can be listening on the radio and catch up with it or watch it on uh, some TV channels, NASA mm. TV Live. Mm. We'll have it uh, if you can get that. You can usually get that on the internet. There's some links, I think, uh, available for that. If it is
1: successful in the end, it's one of those moments that are Utterly irresistible, the human emotion in the control room where they're all watching, is oh, it live yeah. or is it not? And it, oh, they get know. a message back and wow.
3: Well, yeah, of course. And if, I guess you have to put it in the context that you know heads roll if uh, these things don't work. I mean, there's a, then a sort of a big, huge inquiry into it that costs a huge amount of money. All sorts of other programs way behind time, so mm. it's really crucial that it works. So, years of investment, but, you know. I'm, I'm uh, quietly confident that uh, NASA will pull this off. Um, they've got an even bigger one in another two years' time, which they're going to land a new rover on the surface of Mars, which will have a, a little um, um, helicopter thing that zips around and does some terrains. I still thing. find this hard to believe in that such a thin atmosphere. Yeah, well, it's uh. Yeah, well, anyway, it's a... a I'm sure they'll a, a, try it Well, they... yeah, it's proving purpose. <laughs> but, yeah, so, yeah, so you're right. The atmosphere is very thin on Mars. And, and to put it in context, it's about 1% of Earth's atmosphere. And if you're... And so on Earth, you'd get about the same atmosphere if you're about 40 kilometres above the surface. So right. it would be, A, at 40 kilometres up, it's really, really cold and it's hard to breathe right <laughs> so, and so. hard to fly a helicopter i would say <laughs> well you would that little guy going to have to have his rotors really yeah. revving to just <laughs> tread water at one uh, percent atmosphere yeah okay what's this machine supposed to be doing on mars it's okay not, so it, has, it hasn't got wheels no no and this is just a pure lander it's just landing it's exploring the interior of mars so when it gets there, it's going to be doing all sorts of experiments. Like for example, it's going to drill down around about five metres, I think, into this into Mars. By That's, a That's a fair dig. It's a decent dig, and they'll be they've got sensors to record Mars quakes. So they want to measure all of that sort of stuff. They're measuring the heat flow out of the out of the planet mm. through that uh, that drill hole. Um, a whole lot of ex- interesting experiments. It'll tell us a lot more about the interior of Mars because it's. Uh, you know, we really don't know much about it, yeah. um, and you know, we don't know about Mars quakes. They've never been detected yeah. to date, so far as so I'm aware. Directly, there's no nothing on there had sensors to do that. So, this should uh, be able to pick it up, and from that, the people who study the interior of planets like. You know the geologists that look at the uh, geophysicists that look at the earthquakes on Earth yeah. can tell you a great deal about the interior structure of a planet if you can get your hands on that sort of data. Can we? Is it going to
1: bring its drill up and have a sniff of what's down
3: there? I'm not sure of that, okay. Graham. But uh, you know, it, it's going to be busy for a few years, uh, so we'll no doubt get a, a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all the answers to that. But yeah, so it's it's a it's a probe of the interior of the planet that's the key thing um it, it could have some uh, sensing for the atmosphere as well mm. i'm not sure about that but uh its primary mission is to look at uh, what the how mars is constructed inside mm. how thick the crust is um the amount of heat coming out which t- tells you quite a lot about uh, the past history mm. uh, and from that information they'll be able to reconstruct a lot more about stuff like the ancient climate and other things going backwards in time yeah And, well, fingers crossed. Wish them all the best of luck
1: for Tuesday, 9 a.m. Now, I found this story um, the most exciting of this week. And Earth is part of space. And we, it seems, got hit by an asteroid in Greenland. What an amazing discovery. And I do recommend you go and have a look at the video of this as well that we've got up on the uh, Weekend sure. Variety yep. Wireless webpage because it's um, it's has some exquisite imagery of
3: um, this big bloody hole oh. in Greenland. Well, that's right. Okay, so... W- This is just a a new discovery. In fact, the scientists working on this have known about it for like a couple of decades, and they've been gradually collecting data on it. It's underneath the uh, Greenland ice sheet, partially, very partially, exposed. So, and if you look at it in the right light from the aircraft, you can see the sort of this sort of 35 kilometre or 31 kilometre diameter sort of subsidence in the surface. Mm. Um, But of course, it's filled with snow, so it's a bit obscured by that, but what they use is ground-penetrating radar, and it happens that, uh, you know, the Americans have an Air Force base about 150 kilometres from the site, uh, and they fly out from there with uh, aircraft, with ground-penetrating radar, because they're wanting to map the surface, uh, the, the the basically the uh, ice sheet on Greenland, because it's melting. Uh, global warming, and Greenland's rising out of the sea because the weight's coming off it and so on. There's all sorts of stuff going on in Greenland. It's like a canary in the coal mine. So they're watching what's happening there. But as it happens, the aircraft that does the surveys uh, takes off from this Air Force base, and then it flies off to do its surveys and it happens just to fly over this general area. So they were t- t- over the years they were just testing their radar and stuff as they were flying over the ice sheet there and, and gradually people started to look at the data under there and saying well hey there's something going on under that piece of the ice there that's a bit odd looks like there's a big circular impression and uh, it's taken a long time I mean there's lots of things that can cause a circular impression I mean you could have a subsidence you could have a big underground sort of uh, cavity that suddenly sort of slumped and and the whole surface has dropped so mm. a, a, cir- a circular circular <laughs> <badges. laughs> a circular, <laughs> a circular um, shape like that doesn't necessarily mean an impact so they had to sort of uh, tread carefully they didn't want to go off uh, half cocked about it so they uh, they collected that radar ground penetrating radar evidence um, that showed that there's a slight uh, hump in the middle which is what you'd expect from an impact crater you see this on the moon it's so a recoil when, isn't it's it? a recoil it's like a, if you drop a ball bearing into a plate of uh, soup for example uh you ever done that <laughs> yeah just for the <laughs> flavor <huh? laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. so if you do that you'll see the splash goes out the side and mm. sprays debris out all around but uh, what happens is then the, the liquidy stuff rushes back into the centre and creates a central splash in the middle and of course if you're talking about sort of uh, rock, hitting rock, and that's all molten, then it kind of stays there and mm. r- becomes a central mountain. And you see, see a lot of craters on the moon have a really pronounced central peak for that very reason. So that's there. The other thing that they found, uh, well, they couldn't, uh, it's under uh, sort of half a kilometre of ice, so the, it's kind of hard to get down there with a geology pick mm. at the moment. They'll probably be drilling it soon, I hope. Mm -hmm. Uh, if they can get the funding. But there's a river running out from underneath that uh, ice sheet. And And that comes from the bottom, doesn't it? That's right. So basically the sediment from there is sort of coming down through that river. So they've sampled that and found samples of grains of quartz, which are very common sort of uh, mineral. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... uh, and you look at that with the right microscope it's been sh- it's been shocked by uh, a huge um, uh, in fact uh, uh, around impact sites you find shock quartz it's, right. it's clearly taken a a big um, hit hit, <laughs> hit. <laughs> <laughs> um the when is the question okay yeah that's the other thing the the dates are it's it's relatively recent uh, and I might say this is in sort of the top thirty of known impact craters on Earth, mm. and the fact it's been hiding in plain sight for so long is, is pretty yeah. amazing. So in terms of its age, the youngest it can really be is about twelve and a half thousand or twelve thousand years ago. Mm. That's actually quite recent. Okay, so yeah. humans were on the planet walking around, um, just getting stage. out of the ice age. In fact, that's right. They were sort of a, you know you know they were quite evolved at that stage. The uh, it could be as old as 3 million years. So that's, that's the uncertainty at the moment. Um, now, there was a big, huge change in the Northern Hemisphere climate uh, called the Younger Dryas, and uh, it's uh, that was dated around twelve thousand seven hundred years ago, mm-hmm. um, and it affected uh, humans living in eastern North America on the continent there. Um, it's the it, most it, rapid climate change. It, it actually mimics what we're going through yes, today, and,
1: as far as and there's been,
3: goes. There's been different theories. I mean, a, th- a, a big impact has always been on the cards, but hey, you know, where's the evidence? Yeah. I mean, it should be somewhere, uh, you know, and nobody said, Greenland. Well, that's right. Um, the other thing it could have been is a collapse of, um, uh, sort of a land collapse uh, of that allowed a huge amount of water, fresh water, to flow into the North Atlantic because the the ch- climate change that they saw, and it lasted a 1,000 years, so it wasn't a sort mm. of... A momentary thing a few seasons it, it, it had a huge impact on the climate uh, and you get the same thing if you sort of flood a huge amount of fresh water into the North Atlantic and change the currents and everything else and the way the heat's coming up from the equator towards the northern hemisphere and all that sort of stuff that interferes with all that whole mechanism of heat transport and so there's these different hypotheses the thing is that this this event is could nicely explain both those things, right? Because this this event would not only kick up a lot of stuff into the upper atmosphere, because uh, you know you hit the Earth with something traveling at, you know, f- 15 kilometres per hour plus uh, hits the Earth surface uh, per second, pl- uh, should I should say? Plus yeah. hits the Earth, makes this huge bang, uh, a huge amount of material will be thrown into the atmosphere and dust, and that would block sunlight for quite a long time drop the temperature which is what happened in the younger dryers uh, in addition to that it, if it hit when the ice Greenland was covered by ice which seems quite probable now then a huge amount of fresh water from that would have come rushing yeah. into the North Atlantic so it could be that both groups are kind of right and this is the smoking gun that uh, points to it right if it's, can they date it? Will well, they be able they to? They will be able to when they've got more mineralogical data. So if they can, I mean, if they could uh, drill into the into the thing, they would get a lot more data yeah. at the moment. They're just getting crumbs that are dribbling out the bottom in this river. But uh, eventually they will get, I'm sure that because it's so important, they will get the funding to drill mm. through the ice into the rock and take samples in various places and they'll probably be able to come up with a a much tighter date. But uh, at the moment, you know, people are plugging for about the the younger date rather Mm. than the older date, but uh, that's because it would nicely explain that... uh, Climate change that's been observed.
1: Yep. And if you just want to have a look at something that is one of those, oh my God, far out and freaky things that actually happened when one of those big dams broke ice dams at the end of the last ice age in North America. That's right. Lake, glacial Lake Missoula. And it just,
3: over half of the United States, it just spilt. And you can kind the, of it see went its out the west, into the Pacific. I yeah, think. yeah. So it created the Montana bandlands, um, and in fact, uh, if in the, that territory, if you're driving through it, it's a crazy landscape. Uh, there's huge, great holes where big huge whirlpools fall as this huge torrent of water came down you get sort of these in the bottom of rivers you know and liquid tornadoes yeah so that's right and so it gouged out in the landscape which is now dry very dry but it left its imprint all through the uh, the north uh, west there yeah and out uh, through um, you know Washington State into the uh, Pacific
1: yeah and you can see the shore if you actually go to Missoula and Google Earth and have a look at the mountain next to it
3: you can see the lake levels as little um dryations on on the mountain oh, right. side well a, a similar thing happened in the eastern mediterranean in the formation of the black sea and that's the sort of uh it's thought that that collapse it's caused the the as the sea level was coming up after the ice age this uh, bit of land collapsed and allowed this the eastern mediterranean waters to flow mm. east into and formed in flooded a huge valley which was the it's now the black sea and there were people living there at that time that was probably about 8000 years ago and it's theorized that 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 event was uh, possibly what uh, was there. Origin of the sort of story of the great flood. Oh, right, yeah. That, well, some yeah, archaeologists I can... argue that, but they certainly have found mm. evidence of human, of uh, early humans yeah. living at that time, early agricultural communities on the seabed of the yeah. Black Sea. Well, actually, damned advanced. So for people the time. knew about it. You know, mm. I mean, kind of yeah. shake your you'd world, you notice, it? you'd <laughs> notice <laughs> it's a hell of a show. Hey,
1: Mum, where's that puddle? <laughs> <laughs> it's getting bigger. Is it worth running? Ah. <laughs> All right, another very exciting um visitor, this Oumuamua thing. It's uh, probably shaped like a long
3: stick Well, it's sort thing. of cigar shape, cigar I think it's shape. a pretty good uh, iron.
1: Ex- Maybe, is it made of? I it, don't know.
3: Well... Nickel? Well, you know, the, the fact is that as it got nearer to the sun, it didn't produce any sort of comet-like outgassing. Yeah. Now, that means gas plus dust, and when the sun shines on the dust part, it doesn't see, it reflects off the dust, and you see that's what causes the comet tail. Yeah. And so comets are surrounded by this um, halo of dusty stuff. A murmur didn't show that. Uh, So, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't outgassing. Ah. And the crucial thing, it could have just been outgassing gas and very little dust because maybe it had been heated a number of times in its past and it had lost a lot of those volatiles. Right. So, So, now why that's important is that if it's outgassing anything, then that's actually like little thrusters that change its direction. And uh, we've talked about this before, um, but uh, it's an important point because that amount of outgassing of an object that size, even though we can't detect it directly, would push it off course. And that's really what the video is showing. Mm -hmm. It's 40,000 kilometres at the end of that video off where Newton's laws of gravity say it should be if it was just plain rock. Ah But so in order to explain that discrepancy of 40,000 kilometres, which sounds a lot but it's uh, not much on the scale of the solar system, but it was uh, a small amount of steady outgassing of gas would have produced that sort of end result um, I think we talked but about the lo- fact of the matter is it's off it's off and that's a puzzle I mean astronomers love a puzzle They like mm. to be able to solve these things um, we've, it's the first one that you know humans have ever been able to see this is an object mm. that formed around another star entirely across the huge distances from and it's could have been going in the solar in the, in the galaxy for billions of years just to see we, us. D- we have no idea how old it is so, <laughs> Unbelievable.
1: Just to see us. Of all the solar systems that it could have turned up, there was, was, well, was a
3: species here to look at and, and, you know, astronomers have been waiting to see, an, you know, an interstellar comet or asteroid, mm. and they always expected a comet would be the most likely thing to see, not an asteroid, mm. um, because, A, they're easy to see. So if one came into our solar system because the sun sort of heats them up and they form this big uh, sort of... Um, bright tail and things like that they suddenly become more visible yeah. asteroids come in under the radar and you don't see them because they're not shining on this was found as a fluke so the fact is that the it's so strange that the very first one we find has a shape that has no parallel whatsoever with anything in our solar yeah, system there yeah. is nothing we found in our solar system that has a shape like this like a yeah. long stretch cigar shaped thing they're all sort of rounded or munted, sort of roundy things yeah that's a something that happens well, sometimes too bulbs joined together we right, can understand yeah. that we see that quite commonly like sort of a binary we call them binary asteroids and you
1: astronomers yeah. often extrapolate from examples of one
3: that's right <laughs> yes well you have to <laughs> you, have you have to, have to. you know, have yeah. got crumbs on the table that's yeah. all you can do <laughs> um and it's never aliens until it's aliens <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right okay that's always the last choice it's far right. more i mean you know, when you think this our sun would have thrown out a trillion objects of either comets or asteroids while it was f- forming and the solar system and the planets were forming, trillions of objects were thrown out of our solar system by interactions of Jupiter and the mm. planets and the sun, and obviously every other star around us of sure, of vast numbers has been doing the same thing. So, space, our galaxy is full of these floating rocky, yeah. icy things. Um, and it was inevitable we would see one and now that we've got really big telescopes on the job, we're going to see a lot, lot more of these in the future. They're going to become a a regular discovery, I think. And it will be so interesting to find out if they're a weird shape too.
1: That's right, exactly. Okay, Uh, we have another video up on the weekend variety wireless and it's depicting a supermassive black hole. Now, on first blush, you could play this and go, oh, well, any old sort of Steven Spielberg type person with an imagination... Uh, it's an artistic impression of what a black
3: hole's going to do. Wow, well, whoop-de-freaking-do. But it's not. No, exactly. It's it's actually a model, the best done mathematical model yet, computer model, of the black hole, supermassive black hole right in the centre of our galaxy. Mm-hmm. So we know quite a lot about it, the stars orbiting it, that and they measure the motions of those stars, so they know its mass pretty accurately. It's about it's around about um, four million times the mass of our sun, mm.
2: uh,
3: and by you know supermassive black hole standards, it's at the sort of lower end of the scale. We know we know supermassive black holes in other big galaxies that are like a thousand times the mass of that.
1: Mm-hmm. But this is the dip, the, the depiction yeah, is as good as yes, we've so got so using grunt.
3: Yes, so we using sort of Einstein's theory of relativity, general relativity, mm. and uh, everything that's known about uh, the, the sort of uh, quantum mechanics and the behaviour of gases and everything else, they put all the physics that's currently known into a supercomputer and ground away for a long time to produce this animation of, of what the gas flows would be like around the supermassive black hole. And it is a representation of our supermassive black hole. It's not just any old one. So, uh, and it's, so it's based in, and reinforced by a lot of the data that's been obtained over the last uh, two or three decades uh, of intensive study by astronomers uh, who have been, you know, built up a, a, a very detailed mm. understanding of that environment. So it's, uh, yeah. So yeah, just think about that when you look at it. You're right. You're you looking after a couple of minutes. You think, eh, you know. Mm. But you know that, and it's all in time, and, and also the the material moving around that black hole would be moving at a appreciable speed, a fraction of the speed of light. So right. what you're seeing here is only a very short moment in that time of that. Uh, object that that the velocities are a significant fraction of the speed of light, so you know you and they, they would whiz around. You know particles be whizzing around that mm. black hole, uh, and for them it wouldn't take, wouldn't feel like very long at all. No, but no, for you us, get all all that, hanging around yeah, so for right. you get all those crazy ass yeah. um, relative brain-twisting effect. things. Yeah. But basically,
1: if they're going fast. They don't feel much time. <laughs> we look at them, takes an age.
3: That's right. That's right. Time. That's why it looks weird. Caught. And so, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, anyway, so it'll be interesting to see um, what else can be ever done with that right. sort of technology. As computers get more powerful, they'll get more adventurous, I'm sure, but this is the best to date. And not made Not matey-uppy. Okay. Oh, let's get into just
1: a little bit on the asteroids that are being approached because it's the most exciting time for asteroids ever, really. We've got real close-ups at um, a couple, Ryugu and also Bennu, and they both look like flying saucers, which is just a bonus.
3: Right, yeah. So at the moment, um, Hayabusa 2 has sort of settled down. It's just sort of gone into sort of holiday mode because the sun's between us and the satellite. Oh, I see. So basically communication with, it with is, is kind oh, of interrupted. it's way over there. It's on the, yeah, so that's right. So it's on the other side of the solar sun from where we are at the present time. So it's yeah. basically been, you know, basically put into sort of not quite hibernation but just sort of chilling out for a, right. a while till the sun gets out of the way and then they'll get back into it. And the, the main thing they're going to do there is um, be attempting the sort of more adventurous landing attempts and right. sample obtaining... Uh, which will be happening in later January, early February, I think. Okay. Um, Then OSIRIS-REx, well, that's the NASA satellite just approaching its tiny little asteroid Bennu. We've already seen one fairly rough images of, a, of okay. it rotating and it's got some very intriguing things its shape is uh, strange it's got a massive great boulder sitting on the surface it looks like it's going to fly off but anyway that's uh so that that's still approaching and so by the end of december it should be locked into a proper orbit around it but it's a, a incredibly delicate maneuver to approach this tiny object because it's it's is so weak mm. And what is it, 500 metres across or something? It's only 500 metres across, so, you know, that's the size of a small hummock, you know, in your yeah. local neighbourhood, you know, it's, yeah. that's a small little uh, thing. And not it, much holding it together? No, and it'll just be a shingle pile, so it's not as dense as a, like, a, if you have a small hill near you, that that material in that hill is a lot denser than this uh, object.
1: Yeah. OK, uh, just a reminder that these supplementary, complementary videos uh, surrounding a lot of the things we've been talking about uh, up there on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Easiest by far for you to just go there and click on them uh, because some of them are sort of complicated subjects, but they're beautiful. And I'm quite excited about this Greenland thing. It's just yeah, been well, hiding there. Yeah, you There's know, it's going to be,
3: you know, it'll, the science will be settled, I think, fairly quickly uh, because it's a very important discovery, very yeah. important. OK. Grant, thank you so much. Thanks, Grant.
1: Do go and have a look at some of the links that we've put up, the links that we've put up on Weekend Variety Wireless Program. You go uh, there via uh, Google, uh, click on the bit where it says click here for this weekend's rundown. You'll see at the top uh, the depiction of that crater in Greenland is kind of amazing. Um, Max Greyer answering your questions on words in the next hour. Oh, and a heads-up for tomorrow night. An ex-Jehovah's Witness, not just any ex-Jehovah's Jehovah's Witness, an ex-elder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is kind of special. He's going to be frank, upfront, and maintains he can support everything that he asserts about leaving the Church of the Jehovah's Witnesses. One of the big end-of-the-worldy ones Uh, came about after a failed prediction of the end of the world, which seems to do these religions no harm whatsoever. In fact helps them. I don't know how that works. Anyway, don't miss him. His name's Shane. He's gonna be on tomorrow night after 9.30. It's news time, 9 o'clock.